Hello everybody and welcome, or maybe welcome back, to What Would The Smart Party Do? The UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, from his Tower of Power down south, is my girlfriend Ben. <laughs> Tower of Power. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hello. All good and great down here in the Tower, as you'd expect. Lovely. That, that's one for our northern listeners, certainly the people from Bolton and Lancashire. Like Dirk the Dice, he'll know that. From one of the old radio stations up there, used to go on about the Tower of Power on Winter Hill, which, if you drew past right. it, is just a, like a pylon that's on his <laughs> withered heath. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the imagery, so I'm sticking with it. I'm guessing if it's in the north of England, there's probably a brown sign pointing towards it as some kind of tourist destination. That's <laughs> like high living, isn't it? A, a rusty structure on top of a hill. Well, don't get me talking about the highest motorway in the UK and various other things that we've got going on. <laughs> other attractions. And 15 of the genuinely oldest pubs in Britain, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All of them. Well, <laughs> talking of reminiscing, something our loyal listeners and others may know is that both you and I, back in the day, have worked for Games Workshop. We have. In a variety of capacities. And we still have a fondness, A, for the old world. We're going to play some Warhammer with a good friend, Guy, off the Unconventional mm -hmm. Gems channel, which I also co-host. Because it's good fun, and uh, we do like the old world. It's really cool. Mm. But also there's a, a, a plethora of other games and IPs and other stuff that Games Workshop have had. And while it's largely tabletop miniatures and the board game or car game or things like that, and there is there are some role-playing games that have since come out, there's a bunch of stuff there to like. There's things we can mine, I think, to help us with the role-playing games or to give us fresh perspectives or new ideas or old new ideas, if you know what I mean, old-fashioned stuff that maybe we've forgotten about a little bit. Mm. Yeah, old old is, is the word in question. So uh, my time at workshop was in the 90s into the early parts of the new millennium. And uh, much to my horror, <laughs> that is now referred to as Old Hammer. <laughs> so there's... <laughs> There's a massive nostalgia fest going on, as there is with all of our hobbies. We have that in role-playing, don't we, with the OSR. Mm. So miniatures wargamers, uh, or the Games Workshop stuff in particular, I suppose, they have they have this thing called Old Hammer, where they celebrate you know, um, models that didn't have slotter bases. Uh, but it goes right up into what I thought was fairly modern and current and groovy, but it really isn't at all. And then I looked and saw that Warhammer 40,000 had gone eight more editions since I last looked at it. Wow. <laughs> and people get upset about D&D. Eight editions? What? Anyway, so it's a constantly moving feast. But, um, yeah, without our permission, Gaz, they've, they've gone on and like carried on selling models to people and making games and um growing the community and and apparently being hugely successful over the covid period and giving massive cash bonuses to their employees and so in, in recent in recent years i've been i never really get away from it too much i've always sort of kept my paintbrush nearby but i've got back into painting models and playing games and um and obviously you know hanging out with steamforge matt and the rest of those guys means that there's a lot of there's a lot of wargaming going on but I guess, like most of our listeners, and I know you do this too, if you're forced ever to even play, I don't know, Cluedo, you're going to start putting a role-playing spin on it in your head. And uh, I, I, you know, I can just totally imagine that most of us are the same. You know, we watch a movie, we think about scenario hooks, mm -hmm. we read a book, we start thinking about, well, that's going to be an NPC. And when I'm playing Warhammer, everyone else is trying to win. <laughs> 
<laughs> and in fact, what I'm doing is moving my units about and wondering, like, you know, whether the uh, the the battle bearer, the banner bearer, has got a family back home and uh, what he does for gold pieces on a Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember us playing, I think it was Hero Clicks or something like that, and you were doing things with your models that they were doing in the comics, and I was playing to win and won. <laughs> so, yeah, so. <laughs> this is normal, right? So I, yeah. I'm, I've got if I've got Wolverine on the team, I've got to have Cyclops, and you had three Fire Lords. I mean, I know it's the comics, but uh, why have you got three Fire Lords, guys? Well, it's got the best numbers. This uh, is really good. Yeah, there's <laughs> <laughs> three of them. Ah. Anyway, anyway, so let me tell you something about Games Workshop games that uh, that you will remember, but uh, um, and and hopefully some of our listeners do too. Um, GW have always uh, put most of their investment, as you can imagine, into Warhammer and 40k. Um, and in recent years, they blew up the old world and went to Age of Sigmar, mm-hmm. um, which has its own role playing game, which which I really enjoy playing. Soulbound, mm-hmm. I think, is a great game, and that's going to be on our. That's on our up-and-coming schedule for UGMs as well, I think, isn't it? Yeah, it's part definitely. Of Warhammer season. Um, so that's really nice. And um, and recently, like very recently, in the last couple of weeks at the time of recording, uh, they brought back the Old World to the miniatures game. That's right, yeah. Um, two mixed reviews, I think is fair to say. Uh-huh. Um, I'm lucky enough to be pals with one of the playtesters. So for the last couple of years, I've been getting recent reports of like, the ups and downs of the magic system and all this kind of stuff and yeah you know not massively important to any of us here now i suppose but it's uh, it's been interesting to see people's reaction to the old world and uh, it's difficult to see who the audience is for it but there is definitely definitely a massive massive demographic of people who want to buy it hmm. and they tend they looks to me from from my objective viewpoint it looks like they're guys like you and i who are playing Warhammer or Warhammer Fantasy roleplay back in the day, and we we understand the difference between someone from the Empire and a Bretonian, for example. And yes. you know, we might consider things like lizard men to be quite new for yeah. <laughs> I'm Not really sure if they're proper or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's queues around the block in Nottingham in your in your manor for the for the opening day. Yeah, as usual, stock is scarce. The scalpers are going mad. It's actually quite difficult to get hold of these old skeleton regiments um actually it's never been that difficult to get hold of those skeleton regiments because like literally two months ago they were a pound on ebay yeah <laughs> so there's a lot of desire for the games workshop ip and i think that's what we're going to go with tonight isn't it it's mm. like these these great worlds and these great stories um we've always played our games outside of just like running at each other and hitting each other in a, on a golf course, which is what Warhammer used to look like. Yeah. And there's mileage to be had, would you say? Yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. And but there are comparisons and parallels and things like that, so we could probably just pull out bits and pieces as we go along with things. Remembering much of a scattergun type approach, to be honest. Scatter terrain approach. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the, the first one I'll mention is Necromunda, because in my time when I was at Games Workshop, we had... Well, you, you always had manager meetings, but the particular one I remember was at uh, Alton Towers, like a big theme park thing. And we got to ride on Nemesis before it opened one day. It was the big treat. But we had some workshops there at the time. We were talking about what could we do. And we talked about things about, um, like, could you have a holiday camp? that was mm-hmm. Kids could just come and play Warhammer all weekend. You could theme it and stuff like that. And they'd go and all kind, especially all kinds of ideas got thrown around. But Necromunda was one I 
um, I think it was John Stollard I spoke to, or one of the other big wigs, that I was getting a little bit of traction with. Because I say the good thing about it is the advancement. It's in mm-hmm. my head, I'm thinking it's like a role playing game, but you don't say that at a games workshop meeting because certainly not back <laughs> when we were there. The, you, no. You're taken outside the shots, <laughs> so you have to not mention that and mention it in other ways. But Necromunda, for people who don't know, is um, hives of an undercity. So you imagine some big industrial world with these huge spires where it's just all smog. Imagine capitalism turned up to 11 and you're in the bowels of this place and part of a criminal gang there. So there's a bunch of different gangs, but they got advancement. That was a, that was a, what was a bit different than bringing your army to a games workshop and playing every week is your characters could level up like they did in Blood Bowl and other games, which I'm sure we'll get onto. But the parallel I want to highlight there, which I think is good, is the, is the niche protection thing. It's the mm-hmm. kind of like certain gangs had abilities that only they could do. And there was like the Spires were kind of like the posh kids from up in the, the clouds kind of thing. But they had like super duper armor and were really cool and really hard to take down. But you only had about four of them. And scavs could eat their own injured to, to survive. Uh, but there's millions of them. But they were cheap, easy to take down. But each group also had special rules on that they could use. And I think that's something I like in role-playing games these days, which you don't necessarily see. Is I mean, D&D does, I guess, that you've got your own particular sets of features, but a lot of other games seem to just have generic... Uh, after a certain point, you can pick from other player books in Apocalypse World or things like that. And it tends to be that kind of approach. And I do like the kind of... Having some similarity between things, or characters rather than gangs we'll be talking about in role-playing, probably. But I like the idea of having things that only this particular class for want of a better word can do yeah and the fact yeah. that it plays thematically into them as well so it should be something that uh, identifies them as well as being a thing they can use if that makes sense yeah it does it does necromunda was absolutely awesome as a game and again the, the people have been playing it ever since and there is a current necromunda available which much to its shame doesn't come with all the 3d terrain which mm. is a big selling point yeah um yeah, and your point about it being essentially a role-playing game is is well met, is well made, mate. Um, back at that particular vintage of games, early nineties, mid nineties, the big boxes of the skirmish kind of line that GW were doing, they used to have three D role-playing written on the outside on the label, right, yeah. three-dimensional role-playing. That was so. I guess the word role-play was was something that added value to the proposition back right. then. It's like let's see if we can get some of those cash. Uh, Cash rich role players <laughs> into our niche hobby. <laughs> um, Necromunda, so much to love about Necromunda. I, I, I take your point about theming as well, because clearly in a miniatures game, um, all of those gangs, those little factions in Necromunda, had a look as well. That was right, very, yeah. very vital, but it was backed up mechanically. Mm. And I think, you know, when we take it forward into role playing games, there's some stuff that you could say was analogous to Necromunda. I suspect Blades in the Dark is pretty close because you have criminal gangs in a in a compact area. Different tone, different aesthetic. But those guys don't have different looks, do they? You can set yourself up as a gang of smugglers or a gang of bravos, whatever. And I don't think there's a particularly a miniature line for Blades in the Dark. I don't think you need a miniature line for Blades in the Dark. But the visuals are deliberately very, very obscured because as a role-playing game, that I guess that design decision is like the theatre of the imagination. You can think what you like, but but Necromunda, um, as as a concept, is great. But the visuals were massively important, and 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 theming it around that stuff was a really big deal as to 
you know, you you would have some gangs who just never touch a shotgun, yeah. um, and you know, and a, a clan Isha with a heavy stubber and a pink mohawk is mm-hmm. you know that's what we're talking about. So I loved Necromunda, and and the new models out for Necromunda now. Treat yourself, go online and have a look at some of them. They are. They are seen, I think, across the board as the best miniatures that Games Workshop produce currently are the ones for their Necromunda range. They don't do millions because you don't need millions, but they clearly let the sculptors go absolutely crazy with their ideas. And they are lovely. They are beautiful pieces of craftsmanship. Yeah, I'll build on that point. I think that's a really good uh, point that I hadn't thought from that way. But, like, yeah, like Band of Blades or, sorry, Blades in the Dark is. He's deliberately vague with some options because you're supposed to fill in all the details. That's the yeah. whole point. And they don't want to tie you in, which is cool, but do people then actually bother filling in the details or do they go far enough? Do they go gonzo enough? Like, I don't, I don't, we don't like gonzo in inverted commas in our games necessarily, but mm. if my gang met another gang of wreckers, but they all had pink mohawks and one of them had like this huge axe that were dragging around, creating a fur on the ground behind them, I've suddenly got a better idea about that gang and it fits to my mind. I think it's worth. Mm-hmm. That is something we can take from that game or the, the theme in general is like maybe not go to 11, but like perhaps over identify on things. If you have yeah. got something like, you know, a, a city full of different gangs, you need to properly identify them all in some way. I mean, they do it a little bit in the original game, don't they? You've got the bread sashes yeah. yes. and the lamp blacks, so that gives you some idea. But then once you've had your third, fourth, fifth, sixth gang, you need to have a bit more about them. Otherwise, all mm-hmm. everybody's got in their head. It's the same dude with the tricorn on, but he's got a different badge. That's right. And I think yeah. it's yeah, it's well worth taking that lesson that it can seem over the top sometimes, but like really identify your different gang so that other people, without you having to say it's one of the clan Escher or whoever it might be, mm. they see a pink mohawk in a bar and they know that that gang's around here somewhere. It might be their bar or something like that. Yes, and um, you know, in your traditional. D&D style games as well you you may just roll up on your random encounter chart bandits never introduce someone as bandits that's <laughs> they should be the death's head skull bakers or you know, <laughs> something or the 52nd legion yeah you need these things need to have that cool theme because that's that's all you've got to go on uh, unlike a skirmish game you've only got your imagination and it can take you a very 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 long way but it it needs some prompts it needs to it needs a bit of a push um, and you know, when I think of Necromunda, especially, I think of it uh, in role-playing terms as something like Slay Industries, which doubled down on those really cool naming techniques and and making sure that everything was desirable, not for its stats, but because of its look or its feel or its theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, Necromunda, Necromunda jumped hard into that, and, and and it did it by zeroing in on a certain element of the forty-first millennium, which was so big and and so monstrous that you couldn't quite get your hand around what people did when they got up in the morning, that <laughs> Necromunda gave you some kind of answer to that. Yeah. And that has spawned a lot of other things since then. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, I did mention Blood Bowl then, so I'll bring that in. You're uh, on your own ear. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's an American football-style game, which from, the I think, the second edition was they made it more like American football, which was to its detriment, in my view. I like the very first one with cardstock figures that you put in little slotter bases. And you basically fought each other on the pitch and there may have been a ball. Uh, but the the aspect of it that I think is useful uh, for role-playing is the star player thing. Yeah. So you know the same sort of thing that your players would level up and get XP and stuff like that, or they may get injured and have to be removed from your roster. 
so there was a role playing amateur, but you could you could hire other people. Like, is it Morgan Nuthrog? I can't remember the ogre's name with a an Morgan Thorg, black and white stripes, Mohawk, and things like that. Yeah. So the one of the things that I've encountered, I think it's a sort of OSR I've kind of leaned into a little bit. It's from old D and D where you can have hirelings. Mm. So I will send one of them first to detect the trap, as the old joke goes. Which I don't know. When you've got to our age, you've heard that so many times now. It's like just not even. You can't remember being a joke in the first place. Like, just let it go, people. How about instead of a random hireling, you try and amusingly say you're going to send first when you know the GM's not going to let you do that and it's a tired old trap. Why don't you hire an ogre? Why Mm. is there not some some more interesting characters? To your point about it's not bandits, it's the Death's Head Brigade or whatever. Like, why is there not a guy from the Death's Head Brigade who's been kicked out for, insert reason here, like another interesting story, if you want one. Why is he not looking for work? He's not part of the gang anymore. He can't, you know, he's got, he's found it's distasteful the things again. So even by his standards, the atrocities are too great now, but he needs to make a living. He can't get a noble job. Can I come down the dungeon with you? I'm useful in a fight, and you're not quite sure about him. Is he going to be, you know, you can have layers to hirelings and entry mm-hmm. them to your party and give them character and introduce bits of the game world in that character that is coming with you, you know. Let's not have random hirelings or just extras anymore, please, people. Let's have interesting characters, that star players that you want to pay for to come along with you for a brief time who may then go away or do something else and come back at a later date as a recurring cast member or something. Yeah. Yeah. Reincorporation works in that as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the idea of star players is they come and go, I suppose, and they're heroes for hire. But you can have crap hirelings do that too. We, we used to have a hireling called Adric Shivers, I think was his name. And um, he played in a couple of D&D campaigns, but he, he worked for more than one party. So, you oh, know, when nice. we moved on yeah. to do another game later on, the same hirelings were in the world. <laughs> and he rocked up as well, an expat from yeah. his other country. <laughs> and none of the characters could go, haven't we seen you before? Because they hadn't. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got to make a living, right? So he can't just work for one Exactly, case. exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, you pay so much better than the last lot. <laughs> And you can, it could be your, your like the the death's head bandits or whatever we're calling them. Like usually one or two get away because you don't fight to the death all the time. Like it could be one of them that's the guy that turns up looking for work. Yeah. Maybe you do recognise him. Maybe he's got that star shaped pockmark under his eye where Jules shot him with his arrow or whatever that kind of thing. But he doesn't hold a grudge. It was just business. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I made an entire role playing game out of a rival adventuring party. So yeah, that's definitely my thing. Unlike Blood Bowl, which is most definitely not my thing. Yeah. I loathe that game with a passion. Um, okay. However, in the spirit in the spirit of podcasting, <laughs> the, the only reason I loathe it with a passion is the same reason I don't like DC Comics. I was just, you know, inoculated as a child against it. And I've taken my, my childhood kind of uh, tribalism into, into my maturity and made it even more immature. <laughs> so so the, the thing with Blood Bowl is it used to upset me because the idea of having like goblin infested football stadiums in the middle of a grim dark old world which i loved for its for its um, for its nature i suppose just seemed a bit silly uh, so oh it was so, yeah and it was silly and 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 having a pop at anything from gw as being a bit silly is itself a bit <laughs> silly and i get that now but my god i was i po faced as a teenager and beyond and still am um, so yeah, I always push Blood Bowl to one side, thinking no, this this cannot exist in the same space as Dark Elves 
or whatever it was. Yeah, well, it's strange because one of the things that got me into it was the, the pictures of the dark elves with spiked gauntlets who were playing ball balls, mm-hmm. and one of the things that drew me into it. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do kind of view it as uh, what's the Marvel series they've got? Uh, what if? Mm-hmm. I view it more kind of like that that it's a you know what if there was a football thing in the, I don't actually think that the the thing exists in the old in my old world either. If you know. What oh, I mean. okay. Cool. I just think it more as an alternate reality where this sort of thing would happen. Because to take inspiration from it, though, although I didn't like it in that particular Warhammer sense, I am interested in exploring why aren't there more sports things in our role-playing games. Mm -hmm. So um, if we were to take, uh, I don't know, Shadowrun. I don't know why I thought Shadowrun, but it's a big franchise. And I I know someone will, will write in now and tell me that this stuff does exist. But I don't remember there being a huge amount about, like, leagues of particular games and when I was reading 2000 AD growing up, there was all kinds of like really cool, brutal sports that were played on motorbikes and speedball and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I do like the Blood Bowl element of there probably is something, some competitive sport played in any kind of setting that you might care to think of. And hopefully it's not like, you know, a silly one like Blood Bowl was and, and where it gets a bit Monty Python-esque and it's like, you know, people playing Quidditch in the Arcane University yeah whatever but you know but in our world stuff like football and rugby and hockey and darts or whatever is a major part of people's lives yeah and i guess because role playing games are potentially written and produced by the people who got picked last for football at school (laughs) maybe that stuff doesn't show up so much and it had to be nfl'd back in the 80s because that was properly nerdy in order to creep into our hobby a little bit like it did when blood bowl came out yeah I can't remember if there's anything in Shadowrun or Cyberpunk and that sort of that's I watched uh, what did I watch this week? Rollerball, the nineteen seventies yes. James Khan movie. And that that sort of thing should exist. But mm. yeah, I don't why is there not more like chariot racing if we go back into history even something like that, even if you go back to ancient Rome or something, like those the worst sports. Mm. The sport might be feeding Christians to lions or something, but the yeah. there were there were events, weren't there? There were things yes. happening. There were things to bet on and for the which there's been a perennial uh, hobby of the people without very much money at the bottom of the ladder for exactly. some time immemorial. There's a reason there's a betting shop in every councillor's day. It's good. Yeah, and I feel at this point it's right to to plug uh, our friend Matt and, uh, over at Steamforge. Uh, the Steamforge was, was brought into existence in order to publish Guild Ball, which is no longer in production, but that's a very much more British take on... Um, on the the themes of Blood Bowl. Blood Bowl's made by Brits, I know it is, but it went very American, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you say, it went a bit American football. So Guild Ball, um, you, you would still be able to find it in places, was a really nice skirmish game um, that was based around, yeah, I, I guess sort of like, you know, working class football uh, back in the day, but but um, with fantasy races and yeah, nothing too ridiculous. They would have like fishermen's guilds and butchers' guilds and... See us have guys with meat cleavers playing football and all kinds of fun and japes ensue. Mm. But just like all the other games we're talking about, the thing that really makes those things sing is essentially the campaign system where your your team grows and your manager grows and your football ground grows and your cheerleader squad gets bigger or smaller. Or, you know, you end up down the bottom of the league and end up playing in the Beezer Homes division. But that that advancement or progress it's it's kind of weird to see how much progress there is, how much story there is in games that are ostensibly designed to be one-offs, just you versus one other player. Yeah. 
but the but the the narrative seems to continue all the way through them and games get linked together sometimes easier than they do in your game of Call of Cthulhu at home yeah which seems counterintuitive but you can see it happening the the thought goes into it, yeah and i don't know whether it's a function of cuz people are going to pick a faction generally speaking for one of those sort mm-hmm. of games that you have to make them really rich and enticing because they're going to pick one and they're going to have fans who are going to stick with them for a long time. So there has to be a lot about them for people to like. Yes. So there's perhaps that's why they could like them. They're like an essence of vanilla rather than the vanilla plant. If you don't know, they've got to put all the good stuff in there to mm. try and get people to, to like them and, and make them iconic. Yeah. And we can get a bit lazy in role playing games, can't we? With, as you say, not just bandits, but it's, it's a market when you go to a town like, well, what's different about the market in this particular fantasy town that you're in? Why is it? You know, what's it famous for? What do they sell? Mm-hmm. Even in the you know the real world, if you go to Europe now, they'll be I don't know they'll be famous for the watermelons or whatever it is. But each village or town you go to has got a thing, yes. and we seem to be lazy about it because it's shorthand. And you want to get to the exciting stuff, arguably, but like it's it should be something we do more. I think is put a richness to the world, whatever setting we're in. Yes, uh, which and that's the thing that, like you say, the, some of these other board and skirmish games do a lot better. Yes, they do. You, you, you're sort of really big games like um, your Warhammer and your your full-scale 40k of course that was just dead easy to set up your army and fight against your opponent just because it's a we'll call this a battle yeah but those games always got better when it was a battle over something or about something and in a particular place as opposed to just a generic kind of industrial wasteland and and clearly that's true in rpgs as well without that rpgs are really really poor aren't they Mm -hmm. if they don't have any of that stuff poured into them by both the players, the GM, and of course the setting that you provide. But what I would say is, if you look at the skirmish games, then that's there's just so much more space and so much more detail, and things just become so much more personal. That at a certain level, there is there is a, there's as much narrative in that as there is in a role playing game. Yeah. And I suppose that's not surprising when you see where role playing games came from. In that D and D started off as a, a fantasy skirmish game. You know, with its roots in chainmail, amongst other things, um, and you know, you still have these huge combat sections in all role-playing games <laughs> that we have a shared ancestry. But what we don't do is cross those streams very often. You know, and it, that doesn't mean put miniatures in your role-playing games at all. That's I'm desperately not interested in doing that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is, some of the games have got some structures to them, and some advancement systems to them, and some scenario generators. And some setting stuff that are just crying out to be role played in. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to nominate one of my favourites in More Time. You'll remember More Time, mm. I would imagine. So it's fancy Necromunda. <laughs> fancy Necromunda, yeah. <laughs> and much like Necromunda, uh, it has a rabid fan base who are still playing More Time. You can still go to grand tournaments of More Time. Um, Spend an idle hour on YouTube looking at new more time, and they haven't updated the game. That's not a thing, not as yet. Um, there are variants that you could say are a bit like it, but more time classic original more time is absolutely doing gangbusters still from a gameplay perspective. And one of the reasons for that is just it's a it's incredible narrative. So the setting itself is a a damned city uh, within the empire in the old world. So it shares that with uh with warhammer um, but it's isolated more time is very much its own thing hit by a comet 
um, which has uh, obviously obliterated the whole place. So it's kind of like fantasy Stalingrad after the event. Mm. Um, and it's full of little bits of weird stone. And your idea is your band of treasure hunters go into the city to try and steal these glowing crystals uh, and uh, and make your money and advance yourselves and pull yourselves out of your hole. But you may have different agendas as well. You might be part of the Sisters of Sigmar to put a religious agenda onto it. Or you might be dwarven treasure hunters, or you could be Reichlanders looking to send back your money to the army. And um, and it's all marvellous, because what happens with that game is that, much like Necromunda, is as you fight battles, you might only have six, maybe ten models, but they'll all have names. And as soon as you put a name on something, when it gets shot or decapitated, it's like a personal loss. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to go and recruit somebody else or one of your scrubs has managed to last longer than any of your sergeants or captains and so you know they've got now suddenly they're more important to you than anything like the the squire in bretonia yeah uh in pendragon or called it bretonia then yeah, the squire in pendragon who gets, <laughs> just becomes like the most important person in the field and uh so more time was lovely for that and much like necromunda as well it was pretty brutal so you could very easily lose a leg which is true in role-playing games as well. Famously, a particular role-playing game, you could lose your left leg quite simply. But you know what? You haven't played a game until you've actually had to saw the leg off your miniature and replace it with a new one. Because <laughs> <laughs> in Necromunda, a bionic arm is like, if it ain't on the model, it ain't in the game. You can't have it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you have to take your snippers to things. So great fun for converting, great fun because your character's physically and mentally changed you you know we played loads of games we have to circle a box that says oh i'm paranoid now but it doesn't actually make a massive amount of difference does it but if you you could have literally a new head or you've become a vampire these <laughs> quite big things happen in miss games because they have to be slightly exaggerated because it's in a wargaming perspective mm. but i like that idea is um you know have biggish stuff happen um, you know, death is 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 kind of a boring answer for change, isn't mm -hmm. it? But you know, but growing a tentacle under your armpit because you've been exposed to too much raw chaos, there's not, don't slow burn that. Have that happen <laughs> like between between scenarios, you know? Because it's more fun because now the tentacle's out for everyone to play with. <laughs> Feels like we've turned to a different channel now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, uh, and it's stuff. Like I was thinking then about, um, I think it was a Blood Bowl game, but one of my characters like permanently lost toughness, mm. and it was just you know like weak, weak lung Charlie, whatever it was called. But like we had to try and protect him on the field because if he got hit again, <laughs> now his toughness is two. He's probably getting injured straight away. So like, yeah. and sometimes you just had to play him and, and things like you say, like losing an arm or some other thing, some like melter gun that somebody had survived, which would leave them with horrible burns, but they got through it. You remembered them from session to session when you played Necromunda or one of or, or one of the other games, and we don't tend to do it in role playing games either. Mm. And that that's a fun thing for people to perhaps explore. Is you can play D and D and move you to zero hit points every session, and you, you still walk around like you're in mint condition, like you've, you've got your new yeah. Westworld doll or something, and you're just in a fresh new body. Like why not note those things down when something's happened? Certainly for the the sort of chaosian games we alluded to there, if it's something like. Uh, called Cthulhu, we get a major wound, or a mm. Pendragon, or one of the others. Like, why not write that down and play into it? And the next session or season, or whatever it is, when you're playing, you walk in with a limp because of that time you got mauled in the left leg by a Zaraxran Deathlord. 
Mm. Uh, or have people in the pub, if you're the GM, comment on it, going, oh, that's a guy who got hit by such a body. Look how he's still, still dragging that foot behind him. Or people asking if he's all right. You know, you, could, you don't have to make your whole game about it, but adding those little details for things that have happened to your character and, re- and doing the reincorporation mm-hmm. uh, just adds to the depth. Why, yeah. why act like you just uh, made out of plasticine and just reformed every session? Why not carry those things forward as new stories? Yeah, of late, uh, the D&D campaign that I'm playing with my home group, we started playing Dungeons of Drakenhain, which I hadn't been aware of. It was brought brought in by another guy in the group. And um, apparently this is kind of a big deal. that They have a YouTube channel and all that kind of stuff, so I don't really know. But anyway, Dungeons of Drakenhain was pitched to me as it's more time with D&D. So, <laughs> cool, cool, when are we playing? I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. And true to form, that's exactly what it is. So it's a big old campaign setting. I mean, it doesn't even have the serial numbers filed off. I mean, it's called Drakenheim, <laughs> for goodness sake. It's. I think they changed it from green warpstone to a purple crystal. But right, but... <laughs> it's a change of colour, but That's essentially the same. <laughs> so this this town's been blatted, and it's got a big smoking crater in the middle, and there's all these shards of like uh, of cool magic stuff that we've got to go pick up called Delirium. And um, and whoever gets the most of it is the best, and it's faction play, <laughs> and it's it's lovely to see those kind of that, that ancestry. So you've got like yeah. the queen's men, who are the essentially the rogues, and um, they want to turn this place into a sort of a lawless anarchist kingdom. So they want to control the city, um, but then turn it loose to make it like I suppose Tortuga in a kind of piratical mm. sense. And then you've got the Arcane Academy who are just looking for the magic shizzle that's in there, but they can power with delirium. And, 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 and you know, these things follow the D&D character classes. So you've got, like, you know, your rogue faction, your wizard faction, your fighter faction, your cleric faction. And um, it's kind of nice to play with those little mini factions. So skirmish games are all about factions, as you were saying about Necromunda from House Cordor and Warlock and Goliath and... And then you get to Dungeon of the Drakenheim and you're seeing factions as well. And then you realise, of course, that your your party is a faction. And it makes you want to have a name for yourselves, literally a name mm. for yourselves. It makes you want to wear tabards that all have the same icon on them. It All of a sudden, it makes you not just a random bunch of murder hobos. You are a slightly more structured band of murder hobos. But you've also got something to murder hobo about. Mm. So the blasted city that's full of that full of treasure uh, that we see in classics like Earthdawn in Parlength or Avis of Big Rubble, these are good arenas for you to push your adventurer forward because there's something to do. And that's what I like about these skirmish games is they've all got a core activity, which surprisingly is not just run up to your opponent and punch him in the face. Mm. There's always something else you've got to achieve. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and it doesn't take much. Like you say, like a lot of the time when you're a kid, like playing a battle was just getting a bit of green carpet out. <laughs> you're yeah. fighting over a field again, apparently, because that's what you do. But uh, our good friend, Boy Ban Simon, who's now in Bermuda, we don't see very often, sadly. He, he, I remember playing Mech, Mech Warrior, was it? Battle, Battle, Battle Tech. Tech. There we go, got them in the end. Uh, yeah, and he had stuff like on the, the board, you'd have um, acetate sheet uh, with grid coordinates and markers or whatever for like. Some supply drop that had gone wrong or whatever you had to get certain mm-hmm. bits of tech and things like that. And it was still we were still playing the same game we always did, but just having a few bits of acetate on the the map suddenly made it a lot more interesting. Yeah. And of course, a lot of skirmish and, and war games have lent into that, you know, before and since probably. Mm. Yeah. But just little tweaks, but a reason why you do it. Like if if someone's asking you to go on 
to the dungeon to get the thing. Is it a religious order and what do they want it for? That to refer to something you were saying earlier, like a reason why you do it, not just because our patron wants it. Like where do they sit in the world and what what flavorful thing can you add as to why you're doing it? Because mm-hmm. so, uh, another thing I sort of abhor is people, apart from having hirelings, tend to fall like, oh, we have to get the MacGuffin. Stop saying that, everybody. This is my instructions here. <laughs> Lean into the game you played and try and add more flavor and make it more interesting and stop trying to reduce it to metacles because that that takes away from it. I think, it's like you say, when we play board games, we try and get more flavor in there. Mm-hmm. So let's try and do it with the role-playing games as well, please, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, don't be too knowing about stuff, you know. Everyone likes to stereotype and you know, let's, let's dive into it. So of late, uh, my skirmish game of choice has been Kill Team, um, mm. another GW one. This has got a bit of a, a storied vintage as well, but not nearly as much of a vintage as the ones we have talked about. But uh, it is uh, GW's uh, second edition, I think, of Kill Team, third or fourth if you include like minor things they've done in White Dwarf along the way. Uh, but Kill Team is not Necromunda, but it's a similar kind of scale. Yeah. So the idea being that you have uh, your your Kill Team is a squad of specialists uh, from from a larger kind of faction that it would be in the 40k universe, and you are the Kelly's heroes, um, uh, or Gaunt's ghosts, if you read the books in the Warhammer 40k universe. Mm-hmm. So you'll have like maybe 10 models, um, and they will all be named. Uh, or you might only have like you know six models if it's space marines, or three models if it's really big space marines. <laughs> <laughs> but instead of just playing orcs, which is a cool thing to do in the forty k universe because orcs are great, yeah, you play uh, you play uh, commandos instead, and mm, uh, yeah. orc commandos, uh, commandos with a K, uh, these guys are brilliant because they're kind of like a little bit like a. World War Two British squaddies, I suppose. <laughs> they all drink yeah. tea out of tin cups and smoke roll-ups, and they all have like cunning plans, and they all seem to come from Ealing. They've got the green woolly uh, hats on and stuff. Aren't they? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, yeah, they're like the old commando war stories, but just sort of like <laughs> boosted up and made slightly more ludicrous. They've got a commando grot, grot being the new word for goblin, and and he's wonderful, and he's dressed in a. He's dressed in a wetsuit and has a snorkel and stuff. So he's a member of the SBS. And they have a bomb squig that carries dynamite in its mouth and you send it forward so it explodes amongst your enemies. And this is all happening on the same battlefield as all of the very, very, very serious Marines and uh, Astra Militarium or Imperial Guard. Uh, and, and they're all going around being very po-faced as, <laughs> as grots and goblins are, are trying to sneak up on people with their cunning plans. Anyway... Kill Team's great because Kill Team is 40k without all of the, without that hasn't been homogenized in any way and it is in no way generic. Now, Kill Team is presented in lots of different ways and one of them is a tournament system, which this makes me die inside a little bit really because it's designed, honestly, it's designed to be so narrative. It really is. You don't even pick from point selections for it. The, the teams are made out of uh, the like, pre-packaged to a great degree, but you pick special equipment for that mission. So you won't always want climbing ropes and grapnels, but sometimes you will want smoke grenades, and at other times you will be fighting at night. So, you know, the games that you play are all very specific missions. Sometimes those missions can be a little bit generic, and sometimes they can be incredibly specific, and you, and you, and you are... You know, you're limited in some ways to two particular kill teams because it's about this particular special operation. 
And your, your models are called operatives because they are singular. And what I love about it is that, again, there's a narrative campaign which you can be playing. <laughs> this is this is really clever, and this should be in role-playing as well if it isn't already. So you can play the narrative version of Kill Team against someone who's playing the tournament version of Kill Team. Mm-hmm. And it makes no odds to the guy opposite you or you that you are playing ostensibly two different um, meta games. So the tournament player is obviously looking for a win, and they have a different way of comp- composing their force and they have different victory points that they can get. But if you're playing narrative, on your side, you've got, a, you've got a special set of operations that are running in the background. And your special ops will be a sequence of scenarios and achievements that you need to, you want to finish in a particular order in order to get little boosts for your guys or what have you, and get access to rare equipment. So my orc commandos have managed to get themselves um, an orc glyph totem pole, which they bring with them and plant in their territory at the start of their missions. And that gives you all kinds of bonuses and so on. But my opponent doesn't need to care about that. They can shoot it, they can blow it up if they want, and it will interrupt my narrative. But I still have to like defend myself against the marauding force that's opposite because they're playing their game and I'm playing my game. And if I'm playing against my mate Dan and he's playing narrative as well, and I'm playing narrative, that's fine. And narratives can combine and often will because they are mutually exclusive, the things that we want to get out of that battle. (laughs) But he's got his own little storyline rumbling around in the background that he might be like trying to unearth this this artifact. Uh, Whereas, you know, I want to go and piss on another warlord's chips or whatever it is. So, So you can have your character. That's one. You have your kill team. That's one level of the game. You're playing a mission, that's another layer of the game. You've got your tactical operations, which happen in all games, which are like your secondary victory points that you want to get. And that, so that's like a third layer. And then you've got this fourth layer underneath it of playing special ops, where you've got like a little story that you and your kill team are following along or generating as you go along and moving through various bits that are going to be on the history of your kill team, assuming you survive that long and you get like a base to build and you get like a name and you get vehicles and all of this stuff that is in like the background, like the backroom men of a football team is all happening. So you've got all that solo fun in between games of noodling away with your backstory, but no one else is forced to deal with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you think about role-playing games, you think like, oh, what's our mission here, guys? And and it might be, oh, I don't know, all right, let's, uh, let's just say we want golden glory, shall we? Because we can't be bothered to think of anything special. And you would like to think that every player also has its own little personal drive or personal agenda. And it's often written down on a character sheet. But how often does it actually happen? And when do those things actually clash when you're out on a scenario? Well, going back to that Dungeons of Drakenheim thing, my particular character is a rogue and wants to be the boss of the Queen's Men, wants to take over that criminal organisation and be the top don. That's marvellous. But, you know, I've got a cleric in my party as well who wants to heal the city and not have it turned into a lawless place. And that means there's conflict. It doesn't mean we're punching each other in the head all the time, but it means that when we pick our scenarios and look at patrons, we've got the the party goal of we want to get some money and be players in this area, but we can't both win at the scenario. Yeah. So, you know, one of our characters is going to have a their personal agenda is going to be dented for the greater good of the party. And that's that happens in kill team all the time all the time it's really clever yeah 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 sounds good i mean i was chatting to 
Ian McAllister, a good friend, Giant Brain, and other podcasts. And we just mentioned briefly Vason at one point, which has got its sort of base building element. I want to call it the easiest shorthand for it. But as you level up, your castle levels up as well uh, and gets new rooms that you discover. So it gives you little bonuses. And there's, there's always like a bit of a discussion about that in terms of different characters want different things they want access to. Mm. So there's always kind of a bit of give and take about what we build. But, you know, and I love Free League. Uh, they know that. Everyone knows that. But like <laughs> a lot of the stuff, like the new Walking Dead, it's got stuff about projects for your group or your survival community and the rest of it. But it's, still, it's got the bones of system around it, but not enough to make it good. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit woolly in places. So, And a lot of these things you get for Free League, they've got good ideas. I think they just they arguably want to build out a bit more, which is, I think, something that yes. we as players have to do. I think because of the window dress, and I always get excited that it will be there for me, and it's not quite, I don't think. But the idea is good, and I think we should conf- you know, consider taking that forward to other games, and you're quite right. If you're playing Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay or something, there's no reason why all the things from Mordenheim or, or elsewhere, you couldn't just transplant them to your game as well. And this doesn't have to be on the GM to do. You no. can work in concert with them, but you as a player might say, actually, as a Priest of Sigmar, I want this to happen. Or, you know, you're looking for a place where you can build a shrine or a church or something. But there's obviously an infestation or there's the, the it's a war zone, basically, because, yeah. you know, another army of some sort is invaded. Whatever it is, it might be a long-term goal, but why not put a stake in the ground as a player and say, this is something I want to happen over the period of our campaign. And then, I've, then you, you, you know, it helps your gem as well come up with like little ideas. It, gives, it makes it, their life easier by thinking... Well, I could have a relic in one of my adventures in the future because they'll need that to sanctify the place that they're going to build or something. And, you know, all these ideas can start feeding on each other. And uh, you can have a choice between different places to go. But if one person wants to get the relic and the other one's saying, can't go there because my friend, the blacksmith, who raised me as if it was my own dad's been kidnapped over here, we need to do that first. Yeah. Like you say, it's not something that has to come to a punch up, but it, it, no. it's one of those things that gives players choices about what you do and who gives and then what happens next time to their choice and do you have to then sacrifice what you want so they can have their thing or do you do go out your way for something or if they die do you then have to fulfill their quest for them because you feel bad about it all those kind of things so it's adding extra layers of detail and interest isn't it and, yes. and you know there's a big thing Robin Laws talks about premise acceptance which we could do with more of in games please people as well while I'm begging favours of the role playing community but go beyond the premise, accepting the premise, like add your own things in there, put your own challenges and things you might be interested in and and expect them to be challenged. Yeah. Because nobody goes into a game of Kill Team where it's expecting to be a walkover. You want it to be challenging. You expect there to be rankles. That objective will be difficult to get to for you. There's a reason for that because if it wasn't difficult, you wouldn't find it interesting. Yeah. So the games that do that kind of stuff or lean towards that stuff that, that, that we love would be... Uh... The Iron Sworn family, the mm-hmm. background vow. So, do, whatever it is that you've got going on that particular week or in that particular episode, you have always got ticking along in the background your background vow, which could be something melodramatic, like you know, get the get the cure for the techno virus thing that's killing my little sister, or it could be you know, seek vengeance, or it could be just rule the galaxy. Whatever it is, it's ticking along in the background. I think I love games that do that. Um, and I like games like uh, Blaze in the Dark where you, you can take on a long-term project. But again, I wish they'd push that a little bit more and insist yeah. 
that you had a long-term project and not call it long-term project. I know that's a placeholder, but it feels <laughs> yeah, like yeah, homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you, we, we should, we've moved a long way away from like lawful good and chaotic evil. We, alignment is a very, very clumsy tool. What people need are drives. What people need are ambitions. And people need reasons to get up and go adventuring. And it's it, and you know, it can be gold pieces. Um, you never see it really as pay, you know. Um, but that's what it is if that's your job. But you know, who thought that skirmish games would be the ones that would show us that it's really important to have like a goal to and and to get to that goal, you have to overcome obstacles, and that might be loads of other people wanting the same goal. That's mm-hmm. pretty easy and classic to to aspire to. And you know, there can only be one arch druid. Um, and you won't be the only one trying to be it. So, you know, you're going to come into conflict. And as you say, guys, if you've got like four players and every single one of them has just got something could be very, very basic when you're generating your character, it could be very simple indeed, but it will soon take on character of its own. And then as a GM, all you're doing is giving the players like back what they said they wanted, yeah. but with added conflict. They're writing the scenarios for you and your campaign is suddenly really personal. And that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, fully agree. Uh, another one I was going to mention actually is um, Space Hulk, which is slight, slight, <laughs> slight gear shift. But one of the things I was thinking about is like, <laughs> well, if you play D anD D or something, or, or like a no, it's like we just go down a dungeon all the time. Mm-hmm. It can be very samey. But one of the things I remember from Space Hulk, which is you are Space Marines in big suits of armor going into a, a ruined spaceship fighting gene stealers, basically. For six missions, or however many it was in the original box. But each of the missions was different and had some mechanical thing which made it a bit more interesting. It might be yeah. retrieving this little robot that had some stuff in it, some information that you needed. Or it might be dis- disarming things, something that's turning off the generators or turning them on again. But you had a time limit to it, so there's a clock. And just by tweaking the... Um, like the parameters of the mission, I guess you'd call it. Like they, they feel they felt like entirely different missions. The first one was like your training one, and then beyond that, they started tinkering with it a little bit, staying with the same core but making things slightly different. Mm-hmm. And th- those kind of tinkers, I think you can do with those sort of procedural games where you're just going into a dungeon and clearing it or whatever. I say just like you to try and elevate it. It's like at some point something happens, and now there's a time pressure. The volcano's going off, or whatever it is, or you've gone in to get the thing, but uh, this group, whoever it is within the dungeon, have picked it up from where it was resting place, the sword that was in the tomb, whatever, and now their leader's running around with it stuffed in his belt. You've got to chase him down to get it off him or fight him for it. You know, there's just little tweaks you can do to things that ostensibly have the same setup will make it more interesting. And by making mechanical tweaks as well, like this particular dungeon is just filled with fog all the time, so it's hard to see and you can't draw a map anymore will suddenly change the whole temper of it and make mm-hmm. it more interesting without having to do a massive amount of extra work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and wargaming is superb for doing that because a pitched battle after a while just gets quite old and it's quite tournamenty. So if you want any kind of spice at all, you either look to history, which is always a, a rich gold mine of, of things you can do. Um, and historical wargaming clearly has you very, very well covered if you want to do the Battle of Karenberg or uh, Bastogne or something like that. But equally, just look through the scenario generators that war games have and mm-hmm. um, and you'll see scenarios like Forlorn Hope, 
where you've got to send out a, a, a brave band from a castle under siege to try and draw the enemy away so that the, the rest of the town's population can get out of the castle. Or you might be playing, well, you know, the current edition of Kill Team. Um, the last season of that was set on a space hulk called the Gallowfall, uh, full of factions all looking for various bits of archaeotech. But that space hulk is about to make planetfall into the next season of Kill Team. So it's, it's going to hit the oceans of this planet and now we're going to be playing over bits of broken spacecraft that are floating in this toxic sea, um, which means that mechanically the ground level of our playing fields is going to be obscured because it's all got this kind of fumes coming off the sea. But we have to climb gantries to get out of that to get clear lines of sight. Nice. That sounds quite wargamey, but that would be a perfect setup for an encounter in a mm. role-playing game. And if not an encounter, that might be just a really nice bit of setting for all kinds of things. You can imagine like a, a you know, toxic toxic uh, ectoplasm coming up out of the, the drains in your game of Blades in the Dark um, and everyone suddenly living in their attics until that, uh, that subsides and then what people are making opportunities out of this. And what fun for the GM as well. What fun for the GM to be playing the world because you don't have a character, do you? But you have all the NPCs, but you you start playing the setting and make the setting come to life. So you know there's fires are spreading, and then here comes a plague, and now this city wall is broken down, and uh, oh, this sports team are playing an away game to reincorporate something we said earlier. So now all of the pubs are flooded with like you know the opposing team's um, you know loyal supporters and their weapons. Yeah, just having stuff happen. When the players aren't looking, it's not like, you know, what's the sound of a tree falling in a forest if no one sees it? It's like, well, no, just make the world move around anyway. And then when the players wake up in the, the dog and basket pub that they've been quite happily staying in for six months and don't know the name of anyone there, <laughs> they realise that things are different outside when I open the door in the morning because that's just like real life. So power it up because those those GW and other company skirmish games make something important happen every time yeah um, because i think that what they are quite good at is realizing you know what you're probably not going to play this for 10 years so we're, <laughs> we're going to like get some juice out of it now uh, and then maybe play it again afterwards with a different faction if that's what you want to do so like yeah. 13th age does but it's 10 games 10 levels you know it's all shadow of the demon lord it's like let's play now and uh, and maybe slow burn has its place but no game suffers from too much pace right yeah yeah you're right and you can foreshadow stuff that's coming uh, if you're planning out if you have events ahead just with, <clears throat> excuse me little bits that you sprinkle in there so I, where I thought you were going with your dog and duck pub was that it was going to be like the landlord was getting evicted or it was going to burn down or well, something, yeah. you know, something yeah, like yeah. that you could start off your very first adventure on the meet there and the landlord's complaining about the city taxes going up again or whatever it is mm -hmm. Because session three or four, you're going to have something about how someone's taking over the city and the, there's some nefarious cult that's now taxing everybody out of existence or whatever it is. But you can lay the little breadcrumbs in the front that won't mean anything up front necessarily. But as things start to happen, your players will all go, oh, wait, wait a minute. Is that mm -hmm. the guy who's doing that? And then mm -hmm. when they have to go and kill the well, whoever it is, the Chamberlain, because they've been told to because he's an evil cultist, like they've got other reasons as well. Like, oh, no, well, I always knew he was a wrong gun. Yeah. You know, you can you can feed this stuff in first, but I definitely take your point that what a lot of us can do sometimes is be a little bit too subtle with stuff mm. or don't want to escalate too much. And the lesson often is that you you should escalate more. Like, bigger things should have happened. There's not, you know, how many times have I played a role-playing game where there's a border skirmish 
a lot more than have the, well, there's been an invasion. Why, mm. why isn't there more of that? Mm. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be a an invasion that ends your particular kingdom or anything, but why is there not now like a, a brewing battle on the, the corner or, you know, that's walking a dragon up or something, all this blood has raised something up. Anything you can think of, really. Have some big event happen that yeah. moves the world on. And that That's something that I, one of my favourite games, Earth Dawn, was all about when at a certain point in the backstory a neighbouring empire who wanted to take back over again after a thousand years landed a fortress a flying fortress in the middle of the world and said come on then <laughs> if you think you're right and turn everything upside down I mean that's the sort of, that, I remember that I remember playing it I remember running it that was just great stuff mm-hmm. I've played millions of D&D games and others where there's been a rival empire or someone that was threatening or whatever it is and nothing ever seemed to happen really I never cared that much until someone dumped an entire fortress in the middle of my world <laughs> yeah. with the 8th Legion and Wyvern Riders and stuff in the middle of it. It's like, all right, well, that's that's changed things. Yes. Well, there's an awful lot of role-playing games in their opening setting chapters talk to you about all of the really big epic stuff that happened 10,000 years ago. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. The Clash of Empires, etc. And now you're in a time of uneasy peace. Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so nothing's really happened. Yeah. <laughs> Take me back to the time when empires were clashing, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be Gonzo or Soulbound levels of like you know superheroics in your fantasy or cyberpunk worlds. It just means that you need to have something. And this sounds like stupid advice. It just needs to be interesting. You need to have an interesting premise, don't you? You need to be something happening, something to to make this session different to the last one or the next one. Something that's going to be just you know a bit more lively i think is the word that i'm looking for so it could be that the person who runs the pub in which you're running maybe they have been um maybe they just die of a heart attack and and you find their body draped over the bar one night what are you going to do with that just report it to your authorities of course you could do that but then you know then his daughter shows up for work as the barmaid and goes you killed my father or it turns out that he was assassinated by some rival bar or you hide the body and then live the life as them and try and run the pub from now on but then you realize he's got a winning lottery ticket in his pocket or whatever it is you just want to have something happening something for the players to glom onto and they will they will glom onto stuff if you if you drape enough hooks it will happen. But these hooks don't have to be like, you know, dangling money in front of them or anything else like that. It could just be a point of interest. So it could even be just, you know, just a, a serving boy who's got an interesting accent and all of a sudden the players are just on it. And then it's just like, right, build from there, build from there. Let's, what can we do with this? What would be an interesting turn? And that's what you do in between sessions is you review what happened, you review the stuff that's in there. How can I reincorporate it? I don't need to think up new NPCs. I just need to escalate what's mm. happening here. Just turn up the heat underneath everything. So what I would take from skirmish games, they tend to rely on stuff like injury tables because of the nature of the game. Mm-hmm. As something that happens post-battle or post-skirmish is just like, well, who's dead? Who's alive? Do you need to recruit more people? Do you not need to? Have you got more territory? Have you got less territory? That's fine. But in a normal or traditional role-playing game, I think you just need to take the inspiration that there should be something happening in between adventures. Well, it's not really in between because it's going to seed itself into your adventure, but it just needs to be something happening as a consequence of what you did last time. Mm-hmm. And you might think you've finished the scenario. You might have cleared the dungeon or you might have found the killer or you might have tracked down that nest of vampires. 
but surely the consequence has to be there in your players, in your characters, sorry. They should all be different. They should all change uh, in one way or another. And they should have to make decisions based on that change. Do they need to take time out? Do they need to go to a sanatorium? Do they need to go on a quest or something? Or do they need to throw themselves back into the next mission with increased fervor? And the world should change as well. So after your adventures, things need to be different because if they're not different, they're the same. <laughs> Thanks for that wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> Live, laugh, love. <laughs> Yeah, I remember we had, when we had uh, Dimitri on to talk about economics and stuff like that, there, there is just a... If you've been in Red Dungeon and come back with 10,000 gold pieces and bought a lot of things in the town, like, everything should be more expensive in that town now because yeah. it's just like a load of money. And there'll be consequences of people who can't afford to live there now or, you know, <laughs> food might be scarce. Or like, even little things like that. But, yeah, I, I remember one of the, the Warhammer games we played with, um, and I've reused it, so... Just stole it, reused it on one of my games, but there was a bard or a minstrel or someone outside the pub. And the next time he went round, he got like a black eye and one of the strings on his lute was broken because someone didn't like his playing. And then someone had smashed his lute and he just had a bodron and he lost his hat and stuff. And eventually he gets to the point when he went back to the pub, it was just a greasy smear like leading to like a, towards the <laughs> sewers. And you thought, oh, he's finally been done in. But the ultimate thing was like, because spoilers for Warhammer listeners, the scaven in the sewers of the cities. And the plot went I went on to the fact the right scaven and that was gonna be the main problem. But like mm. it had actually been laid out for us there that someone was dragged into the sewers. But we just thought, as you did, we all laughed along thinking, Oh that someone's done that minstrel in for being annoying. But it was all the GM telling us what was gonna happen. Mm. But disguising it a little bit, so that when it does happen, you go, Oh wow. And then of course you can escalate and have the sewers boil up with rat men. And yeah. then what's it look like afterwards and all the other stuff we've talked about. So yeah, forward motion, forward motion. Yeah, the world doesn't stop just because the players aren't in it, and the world doesn't stop just because the players aren't looking at it. The, um, I mean, weirdly enough, the old world, the game that we remember in Warhammer for so long, that didn't really move forward for absolutely ages. No. Um, you know, it was it was very static. You had the same old emperor sitting on the same old throne, and it was oh, Sigmar, Sigmar this and Sigmar that, and you know, you had a you had an entire province full of vampires on your southern border, but nothing actually seemed to be nothing happening. The <laughs> <laughs> skaven underneath everyone's home, but nothing seemed to be happening. Um, so you know, uh, they eventually pressed, pressed the go button on that setting, which led to the whole thing blowing up. But at least you could say something happened. And I guess in that classic adventure, Shadows over Bogenhafen, if you lose, in inverted commas, that, that scenario, then there's a chaos gate in the south of the Empire. I would argue it's probably better to lose it for the benefit of your campaign than it is to win it. And like in many Call of Cthulhu scenarios, you know, your victory is the most boring thing ever because the ritual got stopped. Mm, okay. More fun to move on and have things happen, I think. And, uh, yeah, you have to throw out your old scatter terrain and use new ones because it's all been boiled into glass. <laughs> well there's there's a bunch of stuff that we haven't had time to talk about as always we, I don't know why we're limited to so an hour Ben we should do four hour podcasts do let us know in the comments Patreon special yeah. <laughs> Patreon special 20 minute episodes <laughs> <laughs> more you pay the last we'll talk <laughs> we didn't even get onto things like Chainsaw Warrior or whatever Oof. we said like little equipment cards and things like that. Oh, usual, you know, all kinds of cool bits of kit or technique you could use on your gaming table. Well, if you want more, dear listeners, do let us know. And of course, if you've got favourite skirmish games or other games you think have got something that we can learn from, tell us about them. We may uh, know already, but we may not. 
we can't get our arms around the entire hobby, not anymore. Not in this day of proliferation of moving so, things which forward. Is, which is why we talk about games from 1995. That's right. <laughs> With our little goldfish ball of knowledge that we have, which we keep mining. <laughs> so thanks for listening. What again? Once again, listeners, thanks to our loyal patrons who've just mentioned there, who help us keep going. Uh, people may or may not know, I'm trying to move the hosting across to Spotify which was Acast. I think they got bought by Spotify or something. But anyway, if there's glitches, if you're getting more notifications about episodes than you used to, or it's the same ones you already listened to, it'll be that. We're just trying to move platforms. Uh, but don't worry about it. We're still here. We'll still keep the blog alive just in case. And until time, next time, dear listeners, bye for now. Bye-bye. Roll on the injury table.